0: Welcome to the Plymouth Meeting Church Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope the following message touches your hearts and minds. Well, who's excited for Christmas? Anybody? Yeah, a little bit. I know right now it's, it's mixture for a lot of us. Christmas time. It's this Saturday. This Saturday already. All I know some of you might have some Christmas shopping to do, some other things uh, to get done before, before the holiday uh, happens this this weekend. And you know, this time of year, nostalgia plays a big role. Nostalgia, this, this sentimental emotion, it's the longing of the past. It, it plays a big role this this time of, of year. Uh, nostalgia draws us back to things like cookies. We we like to make the same cookies, perhaps year after year. Uh, maybe we're, we're still making grandma's famous Christmas cookies, whatever that, re- that recipe might, might be. But we go back to it time and time again. Christmas isn't the same without that batch of, of, of cookies. Maybe it's music. We, we like to listen to the same songs over and over again. There, there's classics you know the, the some of those christmas classic songs that you hear on the radio like they are unmovable you cannot get them like not to play those songs they are going to be played year after year after year they are classics we keep going back to them and then there, of course there's there's movies i'm a big fan of muppet's christmas carol that that actually might be my favorite movie of all time not just christmas movies i don't know it's a Wonderful Life, there's a, there's a new classic, Elf, you guys like Elf, uh, Charlie Brown Christmas, so, so there, there's a lot of uh, movies, music, cookies, traditions, we keep going back to, it's the nostalgia, we, we keep going back to it, we need to be filled with this emotion. Psychologist Dr. Julian Breens, uh, she states, nostalgia makes us feel happy makes us feel happy. It has the power to bring us together, and it can make us feel safe and loved, especially if that emotion is, is related to people who make us feel safe and loved. On the flip side, of course, nostalgia can can make us feel sad sometimes, too. Now, there's uh, scholars uh, doing some research. There was a scholarly article I was looking at Uh, They were looking at empirical research on nostalgia. And what they found is that it's mostly confined to the fields of advertising and consumer psychology. So that's right. There's there's marketers and uh, the the advertising firms. They know what they're doing. They're, They're trying to monetize your nostalgia. They want you to buy their stuff. And now it's crunch time. It's the Sunday before Christmas, and perhaps you're going to start to see it when you turn on the computer, the internet, the the news page, or the commercials. It's going to be coming at you, the last-minute deals. Here's the top 25 deals you can get online right now. you got to get those deals. Christmas is coming. It is crunch time. And even the feeling of crunch time it can be nostalgic, right? Nostalgia is a powerful emotion, especially when it's tied to things that we value. So I, I have two thoughts uh, this morning. Uh, on one hand, we have cultural Christmas, consumer Christmas. Consumer Christmas tends to scrub out Christ on one side, and we're very much aware of that. On the other hand, on the other side, we need to be careful because I think nostalgic Christmas, even the Christian kind, has a tendency to scrub out some of the details of the Christmas story. Nostalgic Christmas has a tendency to scrub out the harsh reality that the biblical Christmas story takes place in. The nativity story isn't a glittery story. And so this morning, I would like to consider some of the harsh, some of the unvarnished moments in our Christmas story. Because I believe when we take a look at the unvarnished story and this harsh reality that the story is situated in, it actually makes the announcement of peace all the stronger. And this this story, it, it helps us move forward in our faith. It's a story that we can relate to. We look at scenes like this, and at first we're like, we can't really relate to this. None of us was laid in a a manger. But let's take a step back, take a look at the elements of the story. And actually, it's very relatable, I'll argue today. And so for starters, of course, Mary was scandalously pregnant She's an unwed, teenaged mother, and of course, there is going to be cultural baggage around this, cultural shame around this. She cannot escape this bubble of of shame. She is going to struggle with this shame. Perhaps that's the temptation there, is to fall into this pit of shame. Joseph's character, he, he, was, he was described as a man of good character. He, he was just, he was righteous, but now his reputation, his character is, is tarnished, at least from, from outsiders looking in. And maybe Mary and Joseph, if we just kind of sit in that, that little thought right there, maybe just dealing with others. The fear of others creeping in, that, that temptation of, of others, what are they gonna say? Are they gonna throw rocks at Mary? Perhaps that's starting to, to creep in. But Pastor, what would you expect from people from from a little obscure podunk town? What would you expect? Those people have problems sometimes. People like to say, "Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" And I'm sure, just with the the gossip, slander, what the, the talk, I'm sure Mary and Joseph absolutely they they would they would just crave some social peace in their situation. And so they both travel eighty miles. I'm sure that was annoying. Eighty miles—that's about four days worth of travel. They travel to a small insignificant town called Bethlehem for a mandated registration and we're simply told that there's no room at the lodging place. The the normal room, the normal place that they would be staying at is is not available. Another annoying part of the, the story and and then we just, you know, highly guess and highly assume here that her labor, her contractions, her pushing, her delivery, her postpartum, it happens in low, humble, probably dirty settings. Jesus was wrapped up in swaddling cloth. That was normal. That's customary. But what isn't normal is to put him in a feeding trough, a manger. That's not thats not a normal thing to do that you do. And I'm sure Mary and Joseph, they would have gladly embraced a nice, peaceful, quiet, clean room where they can just they can just be a new family, take care of newborn Jesus. Not a parent, but I have been in those hospital rooms, like after all the delivery and things have settled down, and it's it's like there's that moment where the lights are turned off it's really peaceful. The baby's sleeping, mom's recovering, dad's recovering. But there's that like peaceful moment. Like, I don't know if Mary and Joseph really got that. Birth is supposed to be a happy time for families, but what about Jesus' family? Was it a happy time for for Jesus' family? And speaking of family. This little baby boy who's laying in a manger, guess what? He's got some wild characters in his family tree. The gospel writer Matthew uh, teaches us uh, in in a genealogy that, that Jesus has some characters in his family tree that are dysfunctional and chaotic, unrighteous, and famously, Matthew tells us there's there's four women. One was an adulterer. One was a foreigner, not even you know
1: Israelite.
0: A real prostitute, and then a lady who disguised as a prostitute. All in family in Jesus's family tree. Of course, we you know there's a lot of uh, a lot of guys, a lot of unrighteous men in Jesus' family tree as well. Um, Manasseh, for example, King Manasseh, as we look back in time. He was rotten. He practiced false worship. He ran Israel into the ground. It was actually called the kingdom of Judah. But he embraced the occult. He practiced child sacrifice, many innocent deaths because of Manasseh. He is in Jesus' family tree. So let's just pause and ask a question here. What does it mean to you that a holy God chooses to translate himself into a family that has a legacy of chaos and brokenness? Jesus was born in poverty or close to it. He grew up in poverty or close to it. He, he knows the hard life. He was a laborer, a craftsman, a, a carpenter. Like Mary and Joseph, he is a nobody from nowhere who's living in this harsh first century world. And you know, Jesus, he, he knows the drama of family. He knows the burden of work, the pain of poverty, the feeling of obscurity. That's all there in the story. Now, getting back to Jesus' birth, when, when he was born, there were shepherds nearby, uh, the town of Bethlehem. Shepherds. What do shepherds do? They take care of sheep. Now, an important fact about sheep is that 2,000 years ago, sheep were still sheep. They're dumb. They smell. They're weak. They easily stray so fast without a shepherd. Okay, And so shepherds are needed. They're important. They have this dirty job, lots of night work. You got to watch your sheep at nighttime. And naturally, their vocation kept them from observing Jewish ceremonial law. And actually, during this time, even though they have an important job of taking care of, of sheep, Sheep that would go to Jerusalem, potentially for, for sacrifice. They have an important job, but yet at the same time, shepherds were despised. They had a bad reputation. And there's this, this thing called the, the Talmud. It's kind of like the Jewish Encyclopedia of Law and Life. The Talmud actually says that shepherds are disqualified from bearing witness in Jewish courts. Okay, They are not Trustworthy people, just don't even let them come near the courtroom. Okay, cancel culture has been around for a long time. All right, they're canceled. You cannot just just stay away from the courthouse. We don't trust you. We don't like you. Go back to your sheep. And so that night, with the shepherds there, these despised, almost totally rejected shepherds, spirit world breaks into our world an angel shows up to these outcasts in this harsh world joy in the flesh has been born and this is the sign a baby is swallowed up and he's lying in a manger And then suddenly, it's not just one angel, but it's an army. It is a choir. It is the heavenly host. A great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his his favor rests. So these night-working shepherds, these despised sheep watchers who are disqualified From bearing testimony in Jewish courts They are the ones Who first get this testimony They are the ones to first hear this This announcement of joy and peace Now historically sometime in the 8th century BC A Greek poet named Hesiod He was a contemporary of of Homer He he actually said This is how he framed up his, his history classes Hesiod said that history has three ages. You have the Golden Age, the Silver Age, and the Bronze Age. Okay, And, and basically, uh, they were living in the Bronze Age. When Caesar Augustus comes along, he kind of takes that and he's like, guess what? We're in a new Golden Age. This is Golden Age 2.0. It has arrived, the Golden Age of caesar augustus it's supposed to be a time of prosperity and peace you might know it as the pax romana roman peace roman peace a time of peace and prosperity thank the gods because caesar is here but the thing is was rome really peaceful no far from it rome is a colonizing war machine it is violent it is a violent, war- and slave-driven culture. Large amounts of oppression is created, impoverished people, the Roman machine, it plunders, and it brings devastation wherever it goes. And it brings more oppression, more chaos. The machine is hungry, and it needs Fed, It needs money, a.k.a. taxes, a.k.a. let's do a registration so we can get money and, and potential names for military service. So this is why Joseph had to register in his ancestral town in Bethlehem. Now, in Roman culture, it was customary for poets to make a big deal when a potential Caesar was, was born. So over against the harsh reality of Rome that falsely advertises peace and prosperity, God sends his own poets. God sends angels to make the announcement that true peace is here. And the angels sing the song of peace and glory to God. True peace comes not from Caesar, it comes from Jesus. He is our Messiah. He is our true peace. The glorious Prince of Peace has been born. This is exciting. And again, nostalgia can tend to scrub out some of those harsher details that we covered. And so as we revisit and remind ourselves of the not-so-glittery moments of the story... We also reflect in our own story, our own time and age. We reflect in our own world here and we look around and we say, man, our world's messed up. Things are still hard. There's still power issues, oppression, poverty, family drama, social discourse. You you name it. You name it. It's, It's out there. It resonates with with today's pain. And so what can we do? What can we do? Well, first I say, let's do what the angels do. Let's confess with the angels that God is glorious. When the angels say glory to God in the highest, that's actually a confession. They are acknowledging that God is glorious. God is a big God. God is glorious and his peace has arrived. He is glorious in his power and his control. He is glorious in his love. He is is glorious in his grace and forgiveness. He is glorious in salvation. Now, the Christmas story is cool by itself. God becomes human. That's cool. But what empowers the Christmas story is what happens 33 years later, when on the cross, Jesus bore our guilt and shame. The the shame, the guilt of our sins, he bore that so that we can be free, so that we can have peace. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds, we are healed. This world is a battleground of forces, of, of evil, and, and sin, and darkness. But you know what? Tell that to the, cross, the cross-shaped, glorious love of God. We cannot avoid the strife in this world. We can't avoid it. It's going to happen. We're living through it every day. But what we can do is confess that God is glorious, and we can know His perfect peace. We can know the peace of God. Do you believe that? We can know the peace of God even in times of turmoil. Which leads to our next question. Okay. Okay. We can know this peace, but how? I think the first step is to behold the glorious peace of Christ. Behold. Like when Jesus is giving an illustration, he says, behold the lilies. What does he mean? He says, stop, slow down, observe, behold the lilies. Think, reflect. Behold the glorious peace of Christ. Consider it. Take it in. Before you do anything, don't do anything like like just be just be behold the peace of Jesus I think that's our that's our entry point into knowing the peace of Christ and next I think uh, it's, it's an encouragement here how we can know the the, the glorious uh, peace of Christ we, we behold the the glory we behold Christ, and then we can start taking some actions, and I encourage you to, to keep your, your thought life happy. Happy. Keep your thought life godly. That's what I meant to say. Okay? So this is where we can get into our disciplines, like, like pray and, and meditate and journal. Turn off, turn off the TV. Put on some worship music. Paint something. Draw something. Behold Jesus. Slow down. Take care of this thing. Take care of this thing. Trust in God every step of the way. Be devoted to Jesus. And I think as, as we practice our devotion, our attitude will continue to be steady, will continue to be stable. At least more and more. And, and Jesus' big love will, will, will come into our lives. And it, it's glorious. Jesus' big, big love is glorious. And, and when we focus on that, when we focus on how big his love is for us, how big his peace is for us, then the things of earth grow strangely dim. And we're not shaken so much by the harsh world. It's easier said than done. But we're invited to trust. We're invited to to keep our our thought life focused on him. And you can know his peace. It's this assurance that you have through any circumstance. Keep, Keep going. Keep focusing. And next, if you are a believer, know that you have favor with God. When the angels sing, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on peace to those on whom his favor rests, that's not a broad brush, worldwide peace for all humankind. This is, this is nuanced here, okay? Specifically, child of God, this is a peace that is limited to you. You obtain favor with God the Father by believing in Jesus the Son. Okay? And I want you to remember this, child of God, that you have favor. You have favor with God the Father. When you're disrespected, remember this. When you're disregarded, when you're pushed aside, you are have favor with God most high and you can you can confess that with the with the angels you get to sing that with the Christmas angels every single day and so yes this world is harsh Jesus was born into it he was born low Jesus identifies with the low the oppressed the impoverished Families are broken, dysfunctional, and chaotic. Jesus comes to rebuild families. The world needs righteousness. Jesus is the one who makes us right with God. Character assassination still happens all the time. Let's be real. It happens in our own congregation too. Character assassination. Society... Still creates outcasts, it still despises people. Jesus was rejected so that we can be accepted. The gods of violence and greed, those idols, they're still around today. But Jesus disarmed the powers and the authorities, he turns them into a public spectacle, and he triumphs over them by the cross. Shame culture, you better believe that's still alive today. Shame culture, still alive and well today, but Jesus bore our shame so we can be free, so that we can have the glorious peace of God. And you know what? The world doesn't need a call to arms. It needs a call to his arms. And we have that available today. And I would say that's what makes us evangelical, because we can tell the world, where healing is found. The difference between us and them to use that language, insiders and outsiders, the church and the the not church, the difference is we know where to get help. We know where peace is. We know who peace is. The world doesn't need a call to arms. It needs a call to his arms. And so on his birthday, the angels say, peace to the earth. On the cross, Jesus gains peace for us on his resurrection day. Do you know what the first thing he said to his disciples in that locked room? He says, peace be with you. Culture wants to cut Christ out of Christmas. Culture wants culture wants you to spend money. On the other hand, nostalgia wants to draw you back into some safe, warm, and fuzzy bubble but as we look at the Christmas story in light of what happened on Good Friday in Easter the cross has spoken let the glorious peace of God move you forward culture wants to cut Christ nostalgia wants to pull you back into some safety bubble That's mythological. No, the real peace of Jesus makes us go forward. Let's move forward, church, as we trust, focus, believe in this wonderful news of Jesus.